Chapter Nine, Part Two, of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vandover and the Brute, Chapter Nine, Part Two. Vandover's very first impulse was a wild desire of saving himself. He had not the least thought for anyone else. Every soul on board might drown, so only he should be saved. It was the primitive animal instinct, the blind adherence to the first great law, an impulse that in this first moment of excitement could not be resisted. He ran forward and snatched a life-preserver from the pile that was stored beneath the bridge. As he was fastening it about him, the passengers began to pour out upon the deck, from their staterooms, from the companionways, and from the dining saloon. In an instant the deck was crowded. Men and women ran about in all directions, pushing and elbowing each other, calling shrilly over one another's heads. Near to Vandover, a woman, clothed only in her nightdress, clung to the arm of a half-dressed man, crying again and again for a certain August. She wrung her hands in her excitement. At times the man shouted, August! in a quavering bass voice. August! Here we are over here! Oh, where is Gussie? wailed the woman. Here! Here I am! another voice answered at length. Here I am! I'm all right! Oh! exclaimed the woman with a sob of relief. Here's Gussie. Now let's all keep together whatever happens. All about the decks, just such scenes were going on. Most of the women wore only their nightgowns or dressing gowns, their hair tumbling down and blowing about their cheeks, their bare feet slipping and sliding on the heaving wet decks. The men were in shirt and drawers, standing in the centre of their family groups, silent, excited, very watchful. Others of them, ran about searching for life-preservers, shouting hoarsely, talking to themselves, speaking all their thoughts aloud. But there was no panic. There was excitement, confusion, bewilderment, but no excess of fear, no unreasoning terror, deaf, blind, utterly reckless. All at once a man parted the crowd with shoulders and elbows, passing along the deck with great strides. It was the captain. The next instant Vandover saw him on the bridge, hatless, without his vest or his coat, just as he had sprung from his berth. From time to time he shouted his orders, leaning over the rail, gesturing with his arm. The crew ran about, carrying out his directions, jostling the men out of the way, knocking over women and children, speaking to no one, intent only upon their work. In a few moments the deck steward and one of the officers appeared amid the crowd of passengers. They were very calm, and at every instant shouted, There is no danger. Everyone go back to his berth. Clear the deck, please. No danger. Gentlemen, everybody be quiet. Go back to your berths. The steward even came up to Vandover and pulled the straps of his life preserver, exclaiming, Take this off. There is no danger. You're only exciting the other passengers. Come on, take it off, and go back to your berth. Vandover obeyed him, slowly loosening the buckles, 
looking around him, bewildered, but still holding the preserver in his hands. Best of all, however, was the example of a huge old fellow wearing the cap and clothes of a boatswain's mate of a United States battleship. He seemed to dominate the excited throng in a moment, going about from group to group, quieting them all, spreading a feeling of confidence and courage throughout the whole ship. He was an inspiration to Vandover, who began to be ashamed of having yielded to the first selfish instinct of preservation. Just as the boatswain's mate was offering his flask to the woman whom Vandover had heard calling for August, the Mazatlan lurched heavily once or twice, and then slowly listed to the port side, going over farther and farther every instant. Vandover heard a renewed rumbling and smashing noise far beneath him, and in some way knew that the cargo was shifting. Instead of righting herself, the ship began to heave over more and more, the whole sea on the port side seemed to rise up to meet the rail. Under Vandover's feet the incline of the deck grew steeper and steeper. All at once his excitement came back over him with the sharpness of a blow, and he caught at the brass grating of a skylight, exclaiming, "'My God! We're going over!' The women screamed with terror. One heard the men shouting, "'Look out! Hold on! Catch hold there!' An old man, wearing only a grey flannel shirt, lost his footing. He fell and rolled over and over down the deck stupidly, inertly, without making the slightest effort to save himself, without uttering the least cry. He brought up suddenly against the rail with a great jar, the shock of his soft, withered body against the hard wood, sounding like the sodden impact of a bundle of damp clothes. There was a cry. They thought him killed. Vandover had seen his head gashed against a sharp angle of iron, but he jumped up with sudden agility, clambering up the slope of the deck with the strength and rapidity of an acrobat. There had been a great rush to the other side of the ship, a wild scrambling up the steep deck, over skylights and between masts and ventilators. People clung to anything, to cleats, to steamer chairs, to the brass railings, to the person who stood next to them. They no longer listened to the protestations of the brave boatswain's mate. That last long roll had terrified them. The sense of a great catastrophe began to spread and widen all about like the rising of some fearful invisible mist. What had happened? What was to become of them? While Vandover clung to the starboard rail, rolling his eyes wildly, trying to control himself again, a young man, a waiter in the dining saloon, rushed up to him from out of the crowd, holding out his hand. "'It's all up!' he shouted. Vandover grasped his extended palm, shaking hands with him fervently, without knowing why. The two looked straight into each other's eyes, their hands gripped close. Then the waiter turned away, and dropping on his knees, began to pray silently to himself. Vandover saw a great many others praying. There was even a large group, gathered about the band of salvationists trying to raise a hymn. Every now and then their voices could be heard, singing all out of tune, a medley of discords. At one time, Vandover caught sight of the little Jew of the plush cap, of the earlaps. He was grovelling upon the deck, huddling a small black satchel to his breast. Without a moment's pause, he screamed, God a mercy! God a mercy! The sight revolted Vandover 
and in a great measure helped to calm him. In a few moments he had himself in hand again, cool and self-collected, resolved not to act like a fool before the others, but to help them if he could. Near to him a Salvation Army lassie was down upon her knees, trying to cord up a huge bundle wrapped in sailcloth. Here! exclaimed Vandover, coming up to her. Let me help. I'll tie this for you. You put this on. He took the wet, stiff ropes from between her fingers and held the life-preserver toward her. But she refused it. No, she cried enthusiastically. I'm going to be saved anyhow. I ain't going to drown. Jesus is watching over me. Oh, she suddenly exclaimed with a burst of fervour. Jesus is going to save me. I know I'm going to be saved. I feel it. I feel it here. And she struck her palm on the breast of the man's red jersey she was wearing. Well, I wish I could have such a confidence, answered Vandover, sincerely envying the plain little woman under the ugly blue bonnet. She seemed as if inspired, her face glowing. Only believe, that's all, she told him. It isn't too late for you now. Ah, she went on smiling. Ah, you don't know what it is in a time like this. What a comfort, what a support. Oh, look, look, she cried, breaking off and starting to her feet. That man is going to jump. It was the boatswain's mate, the hero who had filled all the passengers with his own coolness and courage, who had been Vandover's inspiration. Some strange reaction seemed to have seized upon him. Of a sudden, he rushed to the rail, the starboard rail that was heaved so high out of the water, stood upon it for a moment, and then, with a great shout, jumped over the side. His folly was as infectious as his courage. Four more men followed him, three going over all at the same time, and a fourth a little later, hanging an instant upon the outside of the rail, then dropping down feet first, disappearing with a great splash that made itself heard in the great silence that had suddenly fallen upon the throng. Everyone had seen what had happened. A thrill of fear and apprehension passed over them all like a cold breath. They were silent, struck dumb, feeling the presence of death close by. Suddenly, a long flash of yellow upon the bridge made a momentary streak on the darkness, and there was the report of a gun. A minute later it was fired again, and, alternating with it, the Mazatlan's whistle began to roar, like a hoarse shout for help. Between these sounds could be heard the renewed clamour upon the decks, the shouting, the screaming, and the rush of many feet. The little children clung about the knees of their mothers, shrieking and wailing monotonously. Oh, mamma! Oh, mamma! Roaring their eyes fearfully behind them. But many of the children, even some of the older passengers, were absolutely silent, dazed, stupefied with terror and excitement, their eyes vague and distended, looking slowly about them, scarcely daring to move a limb. Meanwhile, the Mazatlan was settling forward, and already the spray was beginning to fly over the decks. Little by little the terror increased. People threw themselves down upon the deck, rising up again, their arms raised to heaven, praying aloud, screaming the same things over and over again. The Salvationists tried to raise another hymn, but the sound of their voices was drowned out by the tumult, the roaring of the whistle, the barking of the minute-guns, the straining and snapping of the cordage, the sound of waves drawing closer and closer. Prone upon the deck, 
his arms still clasped about his black satchel. The little Jew with the plush cap went into some kind of fit. His eyes rolled back, his teeth grinding upon each other. Vandover turned from him in disgust. Then he looked around and above him, drawing a long breath, saying aloud to himself, It looks as though it were the end. Well. All at once Vandover knew that the water had reached the boilers. There came a noise of hissing, deafening, stunning, white billows of steam poured up over the deck. It was no longer the Matsalan, no longer a thing of wood and iron, but some strange, huge, living creature that was dying there under his feet, some enormous brute that was plunging and writhing in its last agony, its belly ripped open by a hidden enemy that struck from beneath, its entrails torn out, its life-breath going from it in great gasps of steam. Suddenly its bellow collapsed. The great bulk was sinking lower. The enemy was in its very vitals. The great hoarse roar dwindled to a long death-rattle, then to a guttural rasp. All at once it ceased. The brute was dead. The Mazatlan was a wreck. Almost at the moment he heard an order shouted twice from the bridge, where he could see the shadowy figures of the captain and officers moving about through the clouds of steam and smoke and mist. Immediately there followed the shrill piping of the boatswain's whistle. One of the officers, the first engineer, and some half-dozen of the crew came dashing through the crowd, and there was a great shout of, The boats! The boats! The crowd broke up, rushing here and there about the ship reforming again in smaller bands by the boats and life-rafts. Vandover followed the first engineer, running forward toward one of the boats in the bow. "'Come on!' he shouted to the little Salvationist lassie, pausing a moment to help her with her heavy, canvas-covered bundle. "'Come on! They're going to lower the boats!' She started up to follow him, and the boom of the foremast, which the accident had in some way loosened, swung across the deck at the same moment. Vandover was already out of its path, but it struck the young woman squarely across the back. She dropped in a heap upon the deck. Then her body slowly straightened out, stiff and rigid. Her eyes rapidly opened and shut, and a great puff of white froth slowly started from her mouth. Vandover ran forward and lifted her up, but her back was broken. She was already dead. He rose to his feet, exclaiming to himself, but she was so sure. She knew she was going to be saved. Then suddenly fell silent again, gazing wonderingly at the body, disturbed, very thoughtful. When Vandover finally reached the lifeboat, he found a great crowd gathered there. Three people were already in the boat itself. The first engineer, who commanded the boat, and three of the crew, stood by the fools preparing to cast off. Just below on the deck of the Mazatlan stood two sailors keeping the crowd in order, continually shouting, Women and children first! As the women passed their children forward, the sailors lifted them into the boats, some shrieking, others silent and stupid, as if stunned. Then the women were helped up, the men, Vandover among them, climbing in afterward. The davits returned out, and the boat was swung clear of the ship's side. Vandover looked out and below him, then made an involuntary movement to regain the ship's deck. Far below him, or so at least it seemed, were mountains of tumbling green water, 
huge, relentless, irresistible, rushing on by thousands to shatter themselves with dreadful force against the ship's side. It seemed simple madness to attempt to launch the boat. Even the sinking wreck would be safer than this chance. Vandover was terrified, again deserted by all his calmness and self-restraint. The sailors, standing in the bow and the stern, let out the ropes little by little. The vast black hulk of the ship began to loom up above them all, higher and higher, and to their eyes the lifeboat began to grow smaller and smaller, more and more frail, more and more pitiful. All at once it struck the water with a crash. In an instant it was tossed up again in the air, heaving on the crest of a wave, was carried in and dashed up against the ship, all the oars on that side snapping in an instant. It was a fearful moment. The little boat was unmanageable in an instant, leaping and plunging among the waves like a terrified horse, banged and battered between the heaving water and the hull of the steamer itself. Vandover believed that all was over. He partially rose from his seat, preparing to jump before the boat should swamp. There was an interval of shouting and confusion. The first engineer and the crew leaning over the sides, fending off the boat with the stumps of the oars and with long boat hooks. Some oars were shipped to the other side to take the place of the broken ones, and a score of hands tugging at them. The boat was at length pulled away out of danger. The lifeboat had been built to hold thirty-five people. More than forty had crowded into it, and it needed all prudence and care to keep it afloat in the heavy seas that were running. The sailors and two of the passengers were at the oars, while the first engineer took command, standing in the stern at the steering oar. He was dressed in a suit of oilskins, a life-preserver strapped under his arms. He wore no hat, and... At every gust, his drenched hair and beard whipped across his face. Just as the boat was pulling away from the wreck, Vandover and the others saw the little Jew of the plush cap with the earlaps standing upon the rail of the steamer, holding to a stanchion. He believed that he had been abandoned and screamed after them, stretching out his hands. The engineer turned and saw him but shook his head. "'Give way there!' he commanded the men. "'There's no more room!' The Jew flung his satchel from him and jumped. For a moment he disappeared, then suddenly came up on the crest of a wave, quite close to them, gasping and beating his hands, the water running out of his mouth, and his plushed cap, glossy of wet, all awry and twisted so that one earlap hung over his eye like a shade. In another moment he had grasped one of the oar blades. Every one was watching, and there was a cry, Draw him in! But the engineer refused. It's too late, he shouted, partly to the Jew and partly to the boat. One more and we are swamped. Let go there. But you can't let him drown, cried Vandover and the others who sat near. Oh, take him in anyhow. We must risk it. Risk how, thundered the engineer. Look here, you, he cried to Vandover and the rest. I'm in command here and am responsible for the lives of all of you. It's a matter of his life or ours, one life or forty. One more, and we are swamped. Let go there. Yes, yes, cried some. It's too late. There's no more room. But others still protested. It's too horrible. Don't let him drown. Take him in. They threw him their life preservers and the stumps of the broken oars. But the Jew 
saw nothing, heard nothing, clinging to the oar blade, panting and stupid, his eyes wide and staring. Shake him off, commanded the engineer. The sailor at the oar jerked and twisted it, but the Jew still held on, silent and breathing hard. Andover glanced at the fearfully overloaded boat and saw the necessity of it and held his peace, watching the thing that was being done. The sailor still attempted to tear the oar from the Jew's grip, but the Jew held on, panting, almost exhausted. They could hear his breathing in the boat. Oh, don't, he gasped, rolling his eyes. Unship that oar and throw it overboard, shouted the engineer. Better not, sir, answered the sailor. Extra oars all broken. The Jew was hindering the progress of the boat, and at every moment it threatened to turn broad onto the seas. God damn you! Let go there! shouted the engineer, himself wrenching and twisting at the oar. Let go or I'll shoot! But the Jew, deaf and stupid, drew himself along the oar, hand over hand, and in a moment it caught hold of the gunwale of the boat. It careened on the instant. There was a great cry. Push him off! We're swamping! Push him off! One of the women cried to the mate, Don't let my little girls drown, sir. Push him away. Save my little girls. Let him drown. It was the animal in the mall that had come to the surface in an instant, the primal instinct of the brute, striving for its life and for the life of its young. The engineer, exasperated, caught at the stump of one of the broken oars and beat on the Jew's hands where they were gripped whitely upon the boat's rim, shouting, Let go! Let go! But as soon as the Jew relaxed one hand, he caught again with the other. He uttered no cry, but his face, as it came and went over the gunwale of the boat, was white and writhing. When he was at length beaten from the boat, he caught again at the oar. It was drawn in, and the engineer clubbed his head with arms and hands till the water nearby grew red. The little Jew clung to the end of the oar like a cat, writhing and grunting, his mouth open, and his eyes fixed and staring. When his hands were gone, he tried to embrace the oar with his arms. He slid off in the hollow of a wave. His body turned over twice, then he sank, his head thrown back, his eyes still open and staring, and a silver chain of bubbles escaping from his mouth. "'Give way, men!' said the engineer. Oh, God! exclaimed Vandover, turning away and vomiting over the side. A little while later, someone on the bow of the boat called the engineer, asking where it was they were not heading for the shore. The engineer did not answer, but Vandover in some way understood that it was too dangerous to attempt to run the breakers in such heavy weather, and that they must keep in the open holding the boat head on to the seas until either the wind fell or they were picked up by some other vessel. It was still very dark, and seen under the night from the little boat, the ocean and the sky seemed immense and terrible. The great waves grew out of the obscurity ahead of them, rushing down upon the boat, big, swelling, silent, their crests occasionally hissing and breaking into eruptions of cold, white froth. As one of them would draw near, the boat would rise upon it as though it would never stop, would hang a moment upon its summit, and then topple into the black gulf that followed, sending the bitter icy spray high into the air. The wind blew steadily. Suddenly, toward three o'clock, it began to rain. Vandover, the engineer, all the five sailors, 
and two of the passengers were clothed. The rest of the passengers were little better than naked. Here and there a man had snatched a blanket from his berth, and one or two of them were wearing their trousers, but the rest were clothed for the most part only with their shirt and drawers. There were eighteen women and five little girls in the boat. The little girls were well looked after. Two were wrapped in Vandover's travelling rug, and a couple of men had put their coats round the third. But there were not wraps enough to go around among the women. By far the larger part of them were covered only by their nightdresses or their bedgowns. It was abominably cold. The rain fell continually, and the wind blew in long gusts, piercing, cutting. Every plunge of the boat threw icy bullets of spray into the air, which the wind caught up and flung down, broad upon the boat. Sometimes even a huge wave would break just upon their quarter, and then great torrents of bitter freezing water would fall over them in a deluge, leaving a sediment of salt that cracked the skin. The women were huddled upon the bottom of the boat near the waist, where they had been placed for greater safety. They were fouled with the muddy water that gathered there, their long hair dishevelled, dripping with sleet, clinging to their wet cheeks and throats, their bodies showing pink with cold through their thin, soaked coverings, their limbs racked with long, incessant shudderings, a wretched group, miserable beyond words. One of them close by Vandover's feet, he noticed particularly, had but a single garment to cover her. She was drenched through and through. Her bare feet were blue with the cold. Her head was thrown back, her eyes closed. She was silent, except when an unusual gust of wind whipped the rain spray across her body like the long, fine lash for whip. Then, with every breath she moaned, drawing in her breath between her teeth with a little whistling gasp, too weak, too exhausted, too nearly unconscious to attempt to shield herself in any way. Vandover could do nothing. He had almost stripped himself to help clothe the others. Nothing more could be done. The suffering had to go on, and he began to wonder how human beings could endure such stress and yet live. But Vandover himself suffered too keenly to take much thought for the sufferings of the others, while besides the anguish which he shared with the whole boat, the pain in his broken thumb gnawed incessantly like a rat. From time to time he stared listlessly about him, looking at the dark sky, the tumbling ocean, and the crowded groups in the plunging, rolling lifeboat. There was nothing picturesque about it, nothing heroic. It was unlike any pictures he had seen of lifeboat rescues, like anything he had ever imagined. It was all sordid, miserable, and the sight of the half-clad women, dirty, sodden, and kempt, stirred him rather to disgust than to pity. At last the dawn came, and grew white over a world of tumbling green billows and scudding rack. Some three miles distant, seen only when the boat topped a higher wave, the same procession of bleached hills moved gradually to the south under the fog, their feet covered by the white line of the surf. Not far behind the wake of the boat, the stern of the Mazatlan rose out of a ring of white foam, the waves breaking over her, as if she had been there for ages, the screw writhing its flanges into the air like some enormous starfish already fastened upon the hulk. 
One of the other boats can be seen now and then, between them and the shore, a momentary dot of black on the vast blur of green and grey. There was no conversation. The men relieved each other at the oars, or bailed out the water with their caps and hands, scarcely interchanging a word. The only utterance was an occasional moaning from amongst the women and children. There was nothing to eat. Long since the two whisky flasks had been exhausted, the rain fell steadily into the sea with a prolonged rippling noise. Vandover was leaning upon the gunwale of the boat, his head buried in his arms, when suddenly he raised himself and asked the man who sat next to him, "'What was the matter last night? What caused the accident?' The other shook his head, wearily, turning away again. However, the engineer answered, "'We couldn't carry coal enough to keep up the right pressure of steam and drifted in upon a reef. I said once before that it would happen sometime.' About an hour later, Vandover dropped off to sleep. In spite of the cold, the wet, and the torment in his thumb, he dozed and woke, and dozed again all through the morning. About noon, he was awakened by a more violent rolling of the boat, the sound of voices, and a stir among the other passengers. It was still raining. The boat was no longer cutting the waves with her nose, but was being rowed seaward flank on. A sailor stood in the bow, holding a coil of rope. Close in and seen over the tops of the waves were the shaking and slatting sails of a pilot boat, lying too. One of the sails bore an enormous number six. Vandover slept all that day, and the night following, rolled in hot blankets. The next morning he awoke with a strange sense of unreality, of having dropped a day somewhere. As he lay in his stuffy little bunk between decks, and felt the rolling of the pilot boat under him, he still fancied himself upon the Mazatlan. He felt the pain in his bandaged thumb, and wondered how it came there. Then his fall on the deck came back to him, the wreck of the steamer, the excitement on board, the reports of the rifle fired as a minute gun, the clouds of steam that smelt of a great laundry, and the drowning of the little Jew with the plush cap with the earlaps. He shuddered and grew sick again for a minute, telling himself, that he would never forget that scene. Such of the passengers as could get about breakfasted as best they could in the cabin with the boatkeeper and four of the pilots. Here they were informed as to what was to be done with them. The schooner would not go in for two weeks, and it was out of the question to keep the castaways on board for that length of time. However, at that moment, the pilots were cruising in the neighbourhood on the lookout for two Cape Horners that were expected to be up at any moment. It was decided that when the first of these should be met with the party, should be transferred. An hour after they had been picked up, the wind had begun to freshen. By noon of the second day, it had come on to blow half a gale. One could hope only for the best, as regarded the rest of the Mazatlan's boats and rafts. Not another sign of the wreck was seen by the schooner. The castaways filled the little schooner to overflowing, hindering her management and getting in the way at every step. The pilot crew hustled them about without ceremony, and after dinner one had to intervene to prevent a fight between one of them and a sailor from the Mazatlan over the question of a broken pipe. The women of the Mazatlan, kept in their berths continually, 
rolled in hot blankets, dosed with steaming whiskey punches. In the afternoon, however, Vandover saw two of them in the lee of the house attempting to dry their hair. One of them was the woman he had particularly noticed in the lifeboat clad in a nightdress, and he wondered vaguely where the dress had come from she now was wearing. About three o'clock of the afternoon of the following day, Vandover was sitting on the deck near the stern, fastening on his shoes with a length of tarred rope. The laces, which he had left training having long before broken and pulled out. By that time the wind was blowing squally out of the northeast. The schooner was put under trysails, a three-reefed mitten with a thumb railed up, as he heard the boatkeeper call it. This latter was at the wheel for a moment, but in a little while he called up a young man dressed in a suit of oilskins and a pea-jacket and gave him the charge. For a long time Vandover watched the boy, turning the spokes back and forth, his eyes alternating between the binnacle and the horizon. In the evening, about half-past ten, the lookout in the crow's nest sang out, Smoko! sounding upon his fist-horn. The boatkeeper ran aft and lit a huge calcium flare, holding it so as to illuminate the big number on the mainsail. Suddenly, about a quarter of a mile off their weather bow, a couple of rockets left a long trail of yellow against the night. It was the Cape Horner, and presently Vandover made out her lights, two glowing spots moving upon the darkness, like the eyes of some nocturnal sea monster. In a few minutes, she showed a blue light on the bridge. She wanted a pilot. The schooner approached and was laid too, and the towering mass of the great deep sea tramp began to be dimly seen through the darkness. There was little confusion in making the transfer of the castaways. Most of them seemed still benumbed with their recent terrible exposure. They docilely allowed themselves to be pushed into the pilot tender, and again endured the experience of being lowered to the shifting waves below. Suddenly, like frightened sheep, they stood up in turn in the rocking tender and allowed the life-preserver to be fitted about their shoulders to protect them from the bite of the rope's noose beneath their arms. There followed a sickening upward whirl between sea and sky, and then the comforting grasp of many welcoming hands from the deck above. By three o'clock in the morning, the transfer had been made. Vandover boarded the Cape Horner in company with the pilot and the rest and reached San Francisco late on the next day, which happened to be a Sunday. The End of Chapter 9, Part 2